Ruth, chapter 4. Today we come to what I would affectionately call the exciting conclusion. We have seen everything that the Lord has done behind the scenes. We have seen what Boaz and Ruth and others have done in front of the scenes. And today it all comes together, and we're going to tackle verses 13 to 18. Uh, Let me make you aware that the nature of this sermon is a little bit different than what we usually do. Uh, Typically, we just work verse by verse through the passage. We will do that. But the nature of this text uh, provides us the opportunity to kind of touch on some things that we need to speak to. Uh, It's what my uh, my kids would call taking little side quests on our uh, big adventure. And these will be kind of little topical sermonettes short, to the point, uh, dealing with a number of issues that are touched on here in the passage, and then, of course, we will make a lot of hay on uh, what I would consider the the main idea here in the text. But I wanted to make you aware of that because this is a little different. That being said, let's jump in the deep water right here in verse 13. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And so that's so there, obviously, This builds on what happened last week. All the things have happened. He has stepped up to redeem her, and now they get married. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So, first of the little things that we need to talk about here uh, is the concept of marriage. And in our culture, this is something that has sadly been under assault. Uh, Many people have tried to redefine it. But let me give you an image that will help us here. It's that of a blueprint. God's blueprint for marriage is one man, one woman, one God, one covenant, one lifetime. That's the blueprint. Now, are there things that come along to derail that? Death, divorce, abuse? Yes, they can be. But in a best-case scenario, the way God set this thing up that it should run, it should be like that. One man, one woman, one God, one covenant, one lifetime. And so we stand with all historic Christianity and affirm that that is God's intended design. But that's not all marriage is. Marriage is also a mirror. It's a mirror. It is a profound picture of the Trinity, the kind of of community that exists uh, within the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we, we want that kind of union. Of course, it's not going to be the same, but we want to reflect that as best we can within the oneness of marriage. It's also a profound picture or mirror of the gospel. Paul gets into this uh, in great detail in the New Testament, that uh, we, the, 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 the marital union is a picture of Christ and His church, and so we want our marriages to bear that out as well. But marriage is also this. It's also a chisel, okay? It's a chisel. And if you've been married for more than five minutes, you know uh, that it has a chiseling effect on you. If you you don't see your sin on your own, man, wait till you get married. You will see it. You will be awful in ways that you didn't know possible. And God will use that need for grace (coughs) to remind you and sanctify you in that way. But, of course, it's not always bad news. In fact, it's mostly good news. It's also a source of great joy and fun and fulfillment, means of producing children, a generational impact for the gospel, so on and so forth. And so when we have seen, and we see today, the marital union between Boaz and Ruth, 
we need to be reminded of all that. We need to be thankful for all that. We also need to, uh, fellas, be like Boaz in the power of the gospel, in the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God. Women, we need to be like Ruth in that same way. And if you're here and you're not yet married, both of these characters are aspirational in nature. This is the kind of man you want to become. This is the kind of woman that you want to look for uh, someday. And, of course, the converse is true if you are a single lady. But those are the kinds of things that we've seen in this book, that we see in this text, and we need to pay attention to them. Now, let's go back and revisit verse 13b. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, that is what it looks like. That is a euphemism for uh, consummating the marriage. And it won't spend too much time on this, but let me just make a few comments uh, about the sexual expression within marriage as well. We are pro-sex for married people here at Refuge, okay? Let's close in prayer. <laughs> I'm kidding. But we are pro-sex, so just wanted to say that. Because uh, some churches, man, you would think that they weren't. It's almost like it's a... Uh, one of my preacher friends said it like this one time. It's, it's this dirty, awful thing, so save it for the one you love. Hold out. And it's like just the mixed message there is bizarre. <coughs> and we, we don't want to do that. The Bible doesn't do that. But <coughs> I will say this. <coughs> it is best understood, I think. Let me get a piece of this gum. Kind of like a fire in a fireplace, okay? Like a fire in a fireplace. You get this right... And it will provide warmth, and it will fill your home with joy. But if you get this wrong, it will burn down your proverbial house, okay? And I mean that for people who are already married, and I also mean that for single folks. And listen, I'm no dummy. Every one of us in here has some kind of negative something when it comes to sex, right? For single people, the problems there can be obvious, for married people, the problems might be less obvious, but that makes them no less real. But my encouragement to you today is no matter what brokenness you have or are experiencing in that particular area, do not ignore it. Do not ignore it. And I'm not saying that from the, the stance of, you know, I've seen some preachers, it's like they're doing like sex counseling in their sermon. Like, it's, that's too much. We're not doing that. But what I am saying is, because of the intimacy that this is intended to provide and the help and health that it is intended to bring to a marriage, you don't want to ignore dysfunction of any kind indefinitely, right? Now, obviously, I can't and I won't get into all the details. This is a conversation we can have offline. But this is the kind of thing that, that we do want to address. But let me also suck some of the, like, venom out of this too. For whatever reason, probably a lot of reasons, people feel so much shame around this particular issue, that's part of why it stays in the darkness. And the gospel provides for us so that that does not have to be the case. And man, I've seen this in, I've seen this in every single possible way. I've seen this where the man feels like he's such a failure, he ought to be able to lead better, he ought to be able to fix this, do this, whatever. 
I've seen problems like that. I've seen the wife uh, have similar, why is this me? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, the, the list is endless. And because of that shame, or, or take, take the single thing, for example, you know, uh, pornography addiction for both men and women, people don't talk about that, but, but that's a huge deal. And the shame that comes with that, this is the kind of church where that does not have to be the case. So it does not matter what the malady is, what the brokenness is, what the pain point is. This is a unique place where we can actually talk about that. And if, if we as elders can't help you, I have a growing list of counselor friends that I've made here in town that would be happy to help you. And one of them in particular, uh, this is an area he really, really cares about. So I just want to say that because the text touches on it here, that do not labor and suffer in the darkness unnecessarily. That's what I'm saying to you as your pastor. Because we want to help you, and most importantly, the Lord wants to help you, and we are in this together. Okay? So a little side quest there about marriage, a little side quest there about sex. Uh, let's also touch on one other thing that comes up here, too. And this one, boy, this is a pain point for a lot of people, too. The fact that, look, look back at the, the specific words that are used there. The Lord gave her conception. That is not accidental. The Lord gave her conception. So what that means from a sovereignty providence standpoint is that if a baby comes together, the Lord is involved. Okay? So that's why issues like abortion are important to the church because it's not politics. Like, we're stepping in and playing God on those kinds of issues. That's not our place. The Lord gives conception. The Lord opens the womb. The other side of that truth, and this is where the pain, I mean, we'll come back to that one in a second, but like the, 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 the most frequent pain that you're going to encounter is when the Lord doesn't open the womb and you really, really, really want him to. And listen, there are so many of us in this room at this moment that that has been the case. Multiple families that have experienced some kind of pain here. It could be infertility. It could be miscarriage. It could be stillbirth. I mean, the list here is, there's so many. And again, this church is unique in that we are not trying to look all Franklin-y and Williamson County and everything is perfect and fine and there's no trouble. We're just honest about where it hurts and how we can stand with one another. So again, kind of like what I said before about the sex thing, don't let the shame and the difficulty cause you to grieve alone to an unhealthy degree. Now, here's the other thing. I'm not going to drag everybody out and make everybody talk about their problems. Like, we're not doing that either. When it comes to grief, everybody grieves differently, and that is a complex situation, all right? But what I am saying is, in this church, you are free and encouraged. Get the help you need. So many of us have been not exactly where you are, but we have dealt with that issue, okay? And depending upon your particular difficulty with it, we want to help you. We want to help you. That's part of why the church exists, is to bear one another's burdens.
So that side quest has also been addressed. Let me also uh, make one other comment here that I think will help all of us as we move ahead. On any of these issues, please, for your sake and for the sake of the church, let's be careful in how we speak about them. And here's what I mean by that. You, you take any of these things that we just talked about, marriage, uh, uh, infertility, miscarriage, uh, abortion, any, any of these things. In our historical moment, Christians are not known for wisdom and winsomeness on this issue, okay? They're not, or on any of these issues. And I have seen so much pain caused by people saying things that are historically true and accurate, but saying them, saying them in anger and hostility and so on and so forth. We, we don't want to do that. We're, we're going to say what needs to be said, but man, for goodness sake, let's say it the right way, okay? The second thing, I've said this to you before, but let me say it to you again. It, it certainly bears in this situation. I would encourage you to avoid this statement. Like, I only do this if I, like, said the wrong thing. I never look at somebody and say, I know exactly what you're going through. Because I don't. I don't know exactly what they're going through. I mean, my family has experienced uh, miscarriage, but that doesn't mean it's exactly the same as someone else's miscarriage. I know all about difficult family situations, but I don't know the ins and outs of your difficult family situation. And I've had so many people over the years come to me and not rebuke me for saying that, but, but that, that's part of their story and part of their trauma is somebody said that, and it's like, man, let's, let's just not. Let's not. Come alongside of them, tell them that you've been through it, but avoid that phrase because for whatever reason, it's like a hand grenade in people's lives, okay? And the last thing that I would say here, too, is do not underestimate the value of you sitting with that person in pain and maybe not even saying too much and just praying for them. I'm telling you, there's, I mean, the kind of grief that we saw earlier in this book with Naomi and like that bitterness, sometimes the sermon they need in that moment is about 30 seconds of silence with you with, their arm, with your arm around them and you just praying for them in the name of Jesus. Sometimes that's what they need. So that being said, clearly, those are not the main point of this passage. But because these things are touched on by the text, this is, a, this is, a, this is an opportunity we have to take to touch on these items. All right? Plenty more that could be said, but I absolutely felt like I had to say that. All right. Back to the main quest. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi... Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Now pay attention to that word. <coughs> May his name be renowned in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons who has given birth to him. Now, let's go back and kind of pick through this exegetically here. Blessed be the Lord. Okay? So God is the author of this. He is the source of this. He is the giver of all good gifts. We get that in the New Testament as well. And he has not left you without a redeemer. But she's not saying here that God is the redeemer. We got that elsewhere. 
She's talking about this baby that is being born from the union of Ruth and Boaz. This baby is the Redeemer. And then she explains what that means, uh, that he's going to be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Okay, So a little side principle here as well. If, if you have grandchildren and you have the, 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 the wonder of still having your parents and you get those uh, grandkids around that aged person, it's like that scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where he comes out on a cane and then he like does somersaults, right? There's something about little kids and really old people where like the arthritis does not matter, the, uh, the, the pain does not matter, but we're going to love on that baby, okay? <coughs> that is part of what she's talking about here, <coughs> that children <coughs> have a restorative effect, and so we don't need to ever lose sight of that. And as best you can, uh, when it makes sense, make sure uh, your kids and grandkids are around their grand people uh, as best you can, okay? And then the next thing here, so, so he's a redeemer in that way. But then the other piece is the Redeemer that he becomes and then also points to. And let's talk about what he becomes first. Look at this. Um, 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Now pay attention to that. That's more significant than it looks. (coughs) And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. A son has not been born to Naomi. A son has been born to Ruth. So, so what is going on here? So the, the author is giving you textual clues that something is up. <coughs> they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Oaz fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So, if you know anything about the New Testament, that looks familiar to you. And the reason it looks familiar is because Matthew pulls out this same piece of text in this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and includes it in the genealogy of Jesus. So, baby on the scene here, Obed, is a redeemer. He redeems, he enlivens, he takes, uh, 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 what's her name, Naomi, from bitterness to joy. He redeems this awful situation. And boy, he points to the ultimate redeemer who is coming, which is the Lord Jesus. But look back at verse 16, uh, 16 and 17. Look at this again. This bit about Naomi taking the child. And then also pay attention to this. Who named this baby? The women of the neighborhood. That's not typical either. And so what what is happening here, the author is showing us this child is going to belong not just to this family, not just to this town. He is going to belong to all of history because of the role that he's going to play. So he's a baby. But he's not just a baby. He's a special baby. And also, (laughs) check this out. He was also even born uh, in in this same area. And so this whole uh, 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 idea of how we think about little, small, seemingly insignificant events 
becoming very significant later, we don't need to lose sight of that as well. So let me give you uh, just, you know, one example from church history. Most of you guys uh, know who Jonathan Edwards is. Uh, His, even though he lived hundreds of years ago, his theological impact and the ripples of that remain even today. And one of the things that he was known for, I mean, he wasn't a perfect guy. He had some pretty big fumbles as well. But one of the lessons we can take from his life is that guy was known for praying for the generations of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on that would follow him. He was known for that. Uh, to, prayed for generations to come. And God answered his prayer. I mean, he had a few black sheep along the way like everybody else does. Every family tree is crooked. We know that, right? But he, in addition to himself, he produced, uh, you know, senators and, and uh, like seminary people and other pastors and so on and so forth. And so I think part of the takeaway here for us is we need to think beyond our historical moment. Now, if this is on your radar, my guess is the only place that it's on your radar is financially. Because if you've been around a halfway decent financial planner, what they're going to talk to you about is legacy or generational impact. All right? That's true. That's true. You need life insurance. You need all those things. You, you need to have your estate plan set up so that the, uh, the man doesn't get it all, but your, uh, your, your, your kids and grandkids do. Like, you need to do all that stuff. Yes and amen. I'm a huge proponent of that. But if that's all we're thinking about, and that's the only generational impact that we are planning for, to use a pun here, we're leaving a lot of money on the table. Because we need to be praying for our children, for the people they will marry, for their children, for their children's children, and we need to be seeking generational glory of God, kingdom of God, expansion, impact. That's what we want. And if we only think about that when it comes to estate planning, as a Christian, (laughs) we're leaving a lot of spiritual money on the table. Uh, Another great example of this is, is my friend, many of your friend, Ray Ortland, that guy, he is always, he'll ha- hashtag some of his pictures uh, to the 10th generation. And, and he does that. He's a great example of that. They are always thinking and praying, and every time they get together with their grandkids, you can tell they're always doing something goofy. Uh, Jenny is getting on up in years, and the last picture I saw, she was jumping on a trampoline, uh, which I don't know that I would do, uh, but she was doing that with these kids, and, and there's always, you can just tell there's a spiritual investment and a wicked fun investment that they're making in those grandkids. And so my encouragement here is look at this nugget from the passage. These people did not know. They didn't know that their little kid was going to grow on to be in the line of Jesus. They're just playing the cards on the table right in front of them. But God knew. And when we have an opportunity to kind of look over the window of their lives and see the sovereign providence of God outworking itself, through the responsible decisions of his people, look at the potential of what could happen.
There's a redeemer on the scene for Naomi, and there's a redeemer that comes for all of us. Friends, we need to think, we need to pray, we need to plan, we need to equip others toward generational impact that goes beyond simply the financial. Now, let's wrap this up. How does this get us to Jesus? Well, the the clearest way is what I've been laboring on right there. But believe it or not, there's actually some more breadcrumbs here uh, as well. I mean, that, that I would make a note in this if, if you are a note maker. This bit about Matthew chapter 1, it is not an accident that Matthew was led by the Spirit to include this specific piece of text. Those particular names, those particular people, I think most of us know how significant David was in the life of Israel and gave us a lot of the Psalms and all those things. But those names are not an accident. I think it's also important to understand, just, just like I said a second ago, this, this notion of how little things can make a big difference. One of the ways that this is borne out here is if you think back about the nature of Ruth. Okay, So we talked about the baby. Now let's talk about the nature of Ruth. Do you remember what nationality, if you want to call it that, what nationality she was? She was a Moabite. And do you remember all the way back to chapter 1? I think that was three, four, five weeks ago when we started this journey. They were bad people. They were, we are following a God that believes in child sacrifice. Like, that's what the Moabites were about. Anytime one of those it lists comes up in the Old Testament, it's always bad. And yet, God in his providence wills that this Moabite woman gets grafted in to the genealogy of Jesus. That's crazy. I mean, you would think Jesus is going to, you know, and the way it's often presented is he comes from this long line of very spiritual people. I mean, there's some ringers in there, make no mistake. (laughs) But Ruth's in there too, as far as her lineage goes. And, 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 you know, some of the other people in Jesus' genealogy like God makes a, he makes the straightest line ever with a very crooked set of sticks. And that should give us some hope. That should give us some encouragement that if he can bring redemption out of like a people group like that, oh my goodness, what could he do with us? That should encourage us. How about this also? You, you can't look at the fact that Ruth was a Moabite and she was grafted in and not see the whole bit about us as Gentiles being grafted in. That's extremely significant. She is a pointer to those of us who are not Jews being placed into the story of God, the story of redemption through faith and trust in Christ. So when you mix all this together, the story that began in heartache ends in gospel hope. God finishes what he started with his providential superintention and the responsible actions of his people. He gives Boaz and Ruth a redeemer that becomes David's grandfather who eventually brings about the ultimate redeemer, which is Jesus Christ. So there's been a whole lot we have learned here in the, in the, 
in Ruth. I mean, today, if you think specifically, touched on a lot of these topics, stirred up a lot of dust we're going to have to think through, pray through, encourage one another through. But underneath all of that, Ruth is a story that clearly points us to the gospel. Clearly points us to the faithfulness of God. Clearly points us to the sovereignty of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the ability for God's plan to never be thwarted under any circumstance. And so part of what I hope is the net effect of our study of this book is that your confidence in God grows. That your trust in God is further bolstered. That your experience of the grace of God becomes even more palpable and real. And that this would be a book that you would visit today, revisit through the podcast, visit and revisit in community group, and that it would have marked you in such a way that you go back and you share this with your kids, and you share this with your grandkids. And maybe at the water cooler, as appropriate as it could be at times, you could just say to somebody, you know, I was just thinking about this. We heard this at church this week, blah, blah, blah. This book can serve us in so many different ways. And most importantly, it serves us by pointing us to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who can redeem your situation even if it's far more rough and rowdy and desperate than what we saw in this book. So that's my hope for us, that we learn from Boaz, we learn from Ruth, but most importantly, we learn from the Lord Jesus. So toward that end, let me close us in prayer, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come around this book. We thank you for the historians and commentators and other people that have gone before us and unearthed some of this detail for us. Lord, we pray that we would be not simply informed by it, but transformed by it, by the renewing of our minds. Lord, we also pray for some of these little topical issues that we touched on at the front end. Lord, we pray for grace in all those areas. We pray that you would minister the balm of the gospel to our wounded hearts. That we would be called out of the darkness into the light because of what Jesus has done for us and his perfect life, his substitutes death, his glorious resurrection and his continued invitation to us to come to him in whatever state of disrepair that we are so that he might make us whole. Lord, give us the faith as individuals and as a community to believe that and to experience the power of the gospel at work in our lives. 
Lord, we thank you for this time that we spent together today, and we pray that you would continue to build up our church and that you give us wisdom for the road ahead. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.